0: So I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. This is the Christmas season. We're glad to be on this Christmas season. We're rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord, and we're rejoicing in the fact that God is good, and that we're able to see some things and rejoice in the power and the strength of his spirit. Um, Love Alive is saying blessings and peace and the things that are on, and we thank all of you who are coming on this morning. Um, we're on with Love Alive uh, Fellowship Church out of Buffalo, New York, and I want to talk about the power of the Incarnation. 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 is a text I want to use for today. Uh, in the King James Version, it says, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespass unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation." So in talking about the power of the Incarnation, the Incarnation primarily being that God was in the world reconciling himself to himself, mankind, so that we could come back. The whole power of this text is the point that God became a man so that man could then reunite himself to God. Uh, Listen to the same text, 2 Corinthians 5.19, out of the Amplified Version. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but counseling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's what he's committed to us. That's what we find ourselves uh, doing together And that's how we see the blessings of God and see what God is doing in terms of bringing us into fellowship, into relationship with Him. I love the way the Amplified does this, 2 Corinthians 5.19, uh, Century English version. What we mean is that God was in Christ offering peace and forgiveness to the people of this world. And He's given us the work of sharing His message about peace, but the most important one I want to read is Powerful the Message Bible. It reads like this, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. As you know, we certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life comes about. Look at it, all this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationship with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives, God uses us that we might persuade men, become friends with God. He's already friends with you. So if we're going to properly appreciate the mystery of the incarnation, we must first come and recognize the importance of the coming of the Lord Jesus as God incarnate. For this reason, let's examine the subject of the importance of the incarnation. Let's consider the reasons why it is the doctrine of the incarnation that is vital to every one of us. Humanly speaking, no one anticipated God's intervention into human history by the birth of a child. Born in a manger, not even Judaism was looking for a messiah to come this way. If he was going to come, we look for a grand entrance of a king of something to come warned that would really understand what this is really all about. Furthermore, We have become so accustomed to the biblical narratives of the birth of our Lord Jesus and the credo formations of the doctrines involved that we have almost ceased to appreciate the mystery of the incarnation. So let's go back and get our focus together. We're rapidly approaching Christmas. Strangely enough, this is a time of depression, not just for people in general, but particularly for Christians. The letdown is noticeable. I think for all of us, some of this is probably the fact that we have spent considerable money and effort to make the celebration of Christmas enjoyable, and yet the returns have been minimal. Look, are we? This year of 2020 has proven so depressing with the pandemic, with the economy going down. A great deal of our depression is related to the fact that much of our concentration is turned away from the message of Christ's incarnation. The great joy of Christmas is inseparably bound with the fact of his incarnation. I don't have to remind you that December 25th is hardly to be considered the time when our Lord was actually born. No one really knows the exact date of our Lord's birth, but we do know that by the end of the fourth century, Christ's birth was celebrated on January the 6th in the East and it was divided by December 25th in the west, but look at what, where we are now. Look at the joy of the angels, uh, the joy of the shepherds, of what Christ was going to be, not what he was. Look, his circumstances was dismal. Your circumstances are not the best in this season, but it's not a reason for joy. Angels come to rejoice over the birth, not where the birth was, not the circumstances that led to him having to be in an animal trough, not the circumstances of it being winter and not finding a place to stay for his parents, but they came to rejoice over who he was to become. And I share with you in this season, the power of the incarnation Is that we rejoice now. This is a season of rejoicing, not a season of depression, a season to rejoice for who Jesus is in your life. Oh, I know you may not have no food, you may not have a job, things may be dismal, but God promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. So, if we are in this season, we're in a season that if we remember the incarnation, the birth tells us one thing we rejoice. We may get sad in his death in the next couple of months, but it's because of his birth and his death and family of the resurrection that we're going to be who we are. Our circumstances don't determine what God is going to do for us. What did Paul say? He had learned, and that's things we learn. We don't know. We learn that in whatever state I'm in to be content. It is in this season that we have to learn a lot about contentment. We have to learn a lot about what we need to do in this, in this season. So if we're truly getting into the spirit and celebration of Christmas and Christian worship, then you've got to focus your attention on the event of the Incarnation, which is at the heart of the whole Christian message. I've already stated the doctrine of the Incarnation is central to the biblical Christian celebration of Christmas, and that is a truth that is currently under attack. But the doctrine of the Incarnation, that God actually became a man, and I know we have fictional superheroes where they're constantly superpowers and so forth, but we've got a real superhero. His name is Jesus Christ, who became our sure Ash- Hamaseer. He became the anointed one. He was God wrapped up in human flesh. And when we stand on the doctrine of the Incarnation, often it defines a dividing line between orthodoxy and heresy, between true Christianity and the cults. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. The uniqueness of the Christian faith is casually related to the biblical teaching of the Incarnation of Christ. The Christian doctrine of the Incarnation is one of two central doctrines which set out the unique features of the Christian faith in God. Christianity shares with some other religious belief of an infinite and transcendent God, the source of the world's beings and its values. It recognizes that in every part of the world, traditions of religious belief and religious experiences have made it possible for us to enjoy the blessedness of spiritual life and of the knowledge and love of God. No, this is not a fictional superhero we talk about. This is God himself. But the Christian doctrine of the incarnation expresses the conviction of Christians that this God has made himself known for, specifically and personally, by taking our human nature into himself, by coming among us as a particular man without any way ceasing to be the internal and infinite God. What a mystery. He never stopped being God to become a man. Nobody but our Creator could do that. Perhaps the best way to underscore the importance of the doctrine of the Incarnation is to consider the price for putting it aside. The Bible reveals a number of purposes for the Incarnation of our Lord. Thank all of you who are watching and listening. When we do away with the Incarnation, these purposes will not be realized. Consider with me the consequences of doing away with the truth of God wrapping himself up into human flesh. In the past, God revealed himself through his works, as recorded many times in scripture. But Psalm, one, Psalm 19, verse 1 through 6, he the earth, uh, this whole natural idea of nature is showing God's handiwork. Uh, his word in Psalm. 19 verse 7 through 14. His world psalm 19 verses 1 through 6. His word psalm 19 verse 7 through 14. In the coming of Christ God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Well wait a minute. First God reveals himself in the world through nature through the cosmos. Then he reveals himself through his word but then finally, he reveals himself as a person. John 1 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. God has given us favor, and he's personified truth in a person. God, after he spoke long ago by the fathers and the prophets in so many portions and in so many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, and uphold all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In other words, God made his own selfie. That's why we don't make any images of it, make no other graven images, because he made his first image in the image of Adam. He was made in God's image and likeness, which means God produced his own selfies. That's why he don't need you to make any images of him, because he already made his own image. And so he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, surely through the second Adam, we would have this revelation of God. For the law, uh, John 1, 17 through 18, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is powerful. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him Or revealed him to us. Our Lord can therefore say without any hesitation, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 and 9. And not only does the Lord Jesus reveal the Father to us, he also reveals man to mankind for what God sees in us. John 1 verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Therefore, there was a true light, verses 9 and 10, which coming in the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Imagine the Creator coming into a world, having created, with his creation, and the creation did not recognize the Creator. The measure of a man is the measure of this man, Ephesians 4.13. The measure of a man is the measure of this man who's incarnate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Lord clearly claimed to be the very one whom the apostles represented as the incarnate Son of God. That's what incarnate means. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. It's a little wonder then that those who reject the biblical teachings of the incarnation also reject the authority of the scriptures which so eloquently teach this doctrine. James Barr words, are the logical outworking of his rejection of the doctrine of the incarnation. And I quote, my account of the formation of the biblical tradition is an account of a human work. It is man's statement of his beliefs, the events he has experienced, the stories he has been told, and so on. It has long been customary to align the Bible with concepts like the word of God or revelation, and on effect has been to the line of the Bible for movement from God to man. James Spar goes on to say, it is man who developed the biblical tradition, and man who decided when it might be suitably fixed and made canonical. If one wants to use the word of God type of language, the proper term for the Bible would be the word of Israel, the word of some leading Christians how fallible that people would even think. We'd rather believe something that's not true than to believe something that is true. Nothing could be clearly documented in the scriptures than the fact that the principal purpose of the incarnation was to save mankind from their sins. For the son of man, here's what Jesus said about himself, Luke 19.10, Matthews 9, 13 and Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love this text, especially in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of time at just the right time, at the right point in history, actually you have to understand that Rome at this time was under a period of peace. Uh, they had settled a hundred years of civil war. Uh, now they were dealing with taxation. There was no wars going. On. It was a time of peace. Here comes the Prince of Peace coming in a time of peace in the Roman Empire to offer us eternal peace. And yet his announcement was not grand. He didn't have a parade. He didn't have a lot of things going on. He didn't have a fanfare. In fact, it was covered up, but heaven rejoiced. Angels came. I think again, I may mention this point before. He didn't look at our circumstances. Angels weren't looking where he was born. They were looking at the fact of who he is. God's not looking at your poverty. He's not looking at your circumstances. He's not looking at your lack, he's looking at how he sees you to be in this relationship. The inseparable relationship of the incarnation of Christ and the atonement can be seen at our communion table. What two elements are used to represent the work of Christ, the work of Christ on man's behalf? They are the bread and the wine. Both of these elements are evidence of the necessity of the incarnation. The bread is a symbol of the body, the human body of our Lord, which was given for our salvation. The unleavened bread reminds us that his body was without sin, which is also a result of the incarnation of our Lord. And the cup symbolizes the blood of our Lord, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Blood could not have been shed apart from a human body. So the atonement which our Lord accomplished for us was dependent upon the incarnation. To put it more clearly, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews nine twenty-two, and apart from the human body, there could be no shedding of blood. Hebrews ten verse five through ten. You should hardly be surprised that Satan would choose to give his best effort at undermining the doctrine of the Incarnation, for it is the foundation to man's redemption, to your redemption, to my redemption. The, high, the entire matter of God's eternal salvation hinders upon the argument which is found in Romans chapter 5. The question underlining this chapter has to do with how the righteousness of one man Jesus Christ is able to save many. The answer is that though the sin of one man, Adam, through the sin of one man, Adam, uh, chapter 5, verse 12, verses 14 and 15, constituted the entire human race to be sinful before God, and so worthy only of eternal wrath. The solution which God provided is Christ, the second Adam, whose righteousness shall save all who are in him by faith. Romans 5, 17 and 18, I love this text. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Don't fool yourself. Satan seeks to undermine man's salvation by attacking the truths of Romans chapter 5 on both sides. On the one hand he seeks to deceive us so that We will not believe that there was any atom, revolution can be used very effectively here. There is no one sinful act which condemns the entire human race. The result is that mankind is no longer a sinner by nature. If man is not a sinner under divine wrath, then we surely need no such thing as salvation. Secondly, Satan tries to deceive us by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. By corrupting the biblical doctrine of the Incarnation, Satan can bring us to the logical conclusion that since Jesus Christ was not God manifested in the flesh, he was not the one and only means of procuring man's salvation. One man's way of getting to heaven is as good as another's. The devil is a liar. Once the doctrine of the Incarnation is set aside, the whole matter of redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ is ruined. And we find a great deal of controversy surrounding this vital doctrine. God's initial purpose for man, as well as the ultimate purpose, is that man will reign over his creation. Genesis 1.26, when God had created and placed him in the Garden of Eden, he created him in the image of God. While there's a great deal of discussion about all that that is meant by the phrase "in our image, a magical day," one aspect of this is that man will, like God, rule. God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let him rule." Let's make a selfie of him, and let us let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26, I sort of embellished a little bit there. When Adam fell, all mankind, indeed, all creation fell, and chaos resulted. Man's rule is at best distorted. God's promise, he made this promise both to Israel and the church, is that his people would be a kingdom of priests who will reign with him. First Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. Um, Revelation 1 and 6. Revelation 5 and 10. This reign will be established when the Messiah comes to the earth to subdue it and to rule it. Here's the issue. There was a prophetic word of Jesus coming but the prophets and all had no idea that the coming would be a first advent and a second advent. We celebrate the first advent because he came. He came as a baby. He came to grow and populate and become a man to show us that God was really a man so he could take on our sins. We have a high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities because he knows what it is to be a man because he became totally a man, yet he remained totally God. It is the mystery of godliness that the Bible talks about. In the Gospels, we find the genealogy of our Lord, establishing him as the one of the ascendants of Abraham, Judah, and David, as a legal, not a biological son of Joseph. He's legal, but he's not biological. I don't have time to deal with it now. But in the accounts of the birth of our Lord, there's decided emphasis upon the promises, that's where we say, which God has made to the Israelites of old and especially those pertaining to the righteous reign of the Messiah. And the angel says to Mary, Matthew 2.2 2, Luke one, forty-nine, fifty-four, 54 he said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So the gospel narratives show how Jesus became a legal son although he was not a biological son of Joseph. The thing that inside of her, Mary was told would be the seed of a woman. Well, that takes us back to Genesis 3.15, because it said that the Messiah would come through the seed of a woman. Technically, a woman don't have a seed. it's the man that has the seed, the woman has the egg. But we don't have to deal with biology here. We're dealing with the mystery of godliness. How can the thing created say to the creator, what are you doing? Don't you think if God created us with all of the magnificence of the human body, Psalm 8 says, what is man that you're so mindful of him? If we've got all of this going, strangely as it may seem, it was not enough that the second person of the God was truly God. He must also be a man in order to fulfill God's purposes and his promises to us. The reason is that God's purposes and God's promises were made to mankind as a man. So it is as a man who was made in God's image, and who was destined to rule over his creation. It was a man who must fulfill God's purposes and God's promises. We as fallen man, neither could or would fulfill God's purposes due to sin. So a new man, as he was put back on the potter's wheel, a new man, a second Adam, must intervene in human history. This man must also be free from all sin. To fulfill the scriptures, he must also be divine. In order for God's purposes and promises to be fulfilled, the incarnation must occur, the infusion of God and man. The importance of the humanity of Christ then, the incarnation is underscored by the writer in Hebrews in the second chapter of his epistles. He's writing to the superiority of Christ to the angels. In verses six and eight, he turns to Psalm eight, applying these verses which speak of the dignity and the glory of man. In that he has appointed to rule over the works of God's hands. Not only is the writer using this psalm to speak of Christ, but to speak of him who will reign as a man. In verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews chapter 2, the author goes on to show that it was of necessity for the Lord Jesus to take on human flesh in order to minister to his brethren. The Messiah who was to reign would do so as a man. In the 10th chapter of the pencil to the Hebrews, the point is clearly made that the Lord Jesus of necessity had to add humanity to his deity, Hebrews 10 and 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Do you see the importance of the incarnation to the future hopes of the world? of the Israelites and the church. The return of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom will only occur for us when God does so as a man. When our Lord added humanity to his deity, he did so for all eternity. It is as the God-man that he will return and he will reign and we with him do away with the incarnation and both the purposes and the promises of God are worth what he became in the manger centuries ago is what he shall ever be, the God-man. So to deny the incarnation is to deny the virgin birth, to deny the miracles of our Lord, to deny his substitutionary atonement and his bodily resurrection. In effect, to deny the incarnation is to deny all, to accept the incarnation is to believe all. So in conclusion, if the Bible is correct in teaching us that our destiny is inseparably linked to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then to deny the incarnation is the undermine the very core of our faith. The incarnation is not just a debate about something which took place over 2000 years ago in history. The issue at hand is the incarnation of our Lord are matters of principle which have very practical ratifications. The broader issue of the incarnation is the relationship between the divine and the human, between the sovereign working of God and the human responsibility of man. So what we suggest in my conclusion, I I leave you with this, something very powerful. We may look at the baby in the manger. It may be distorted by the problems we have in time, by the diseases, by the pandemic, by even the hope of a vaccine, by your cares, by the things that are affecting you in your world right now in my world. But in the midst of circumstances that were not ideal, angels said joy to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus concluded in John 16, when he was leaving the disciples, in this in the world you're going to have tribulation, but in me you're going to have peace. So peace I, I leave with you as Jesus says, not as the world gives it, our circumstances is not what we focus on. Look to heaven and rejoice with them. Angels marveled at this first Christmas. The audience was the unlikely shepherds, not the religious church, not the bishops, not the apostles, not the prophets, shepherds, the lowest form of workers. See, not only caring for sheep was menial, but sheep stink. And so the stench of shepherds stink. They were not part of the regular society. They couldn't go around about. They were stinking people. Think of you that way. Your sin stunk in God's nostrils, yet God called you with your stinking flesh into his inner chamber, burned a sweet-smelling incense, because that's what they did on the altar. They were burned incense because the stench of of the lamb was horrible. I love lamb. The meat is great, but cooking it, it stinks. But once it's cooked, it's great. So what the priest would do was burn sweet incense to get away from the stench of the lamb burning on the altar. That's what God has done. He's burnt a sweet incense over your life so that Jesus would become your sweet smelling savior. Under him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than what you can ask and think by the power that rests in us. By Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Be blessed.